Should I do the music or should we just start speaking to each other? Uh, let's do the music. Cool. Okay. This is Film Slob. Welcome to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we're on oh, we are in Zoom once again. I'm here with Patrick Kelly and our guest Joey Shope. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks for coming on, Joey. Appreciate you being here or there, wherever we are. Um, Joey, tell us who you are. Uh, so my name is Joey Shope. Um, currently, I am an improv improv comedian, teacher, and coach in Orange County, California. Um, I work at Info Security when I'm not doing that. Um, I have known Patrick. This is my connection through uh, this podcast for five or six years now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here, though. I've listened to a couple episodes. I'm a big fan of the show. Excellent. It's good to talk to a listener. Um, typically, yeah. when we do this, I ask people why they brought the movie. You didn't really bring this movie to us. It was kind of a choice, and we brought you in. But I'm going to ask you anyway, why this movie? <laughs> well, it's funny. Um uh, with my relationship to this movie, Patrick actually introduced me to this movie. Uh-huh. I mean, I'd heard about it, obviously. In fact, in high school, I just, this, I just, this unfolded for me. Uh, I just remembered that, uh, in high school, me and my friends went to see, uh, two of the movies mm-hmm. and there was this movie and Twilight Breaking Dawn part one. And I was like, I don't want to see a baseball movie. So I went to go see the one Twilight movie. I had not seen any of the other ones. I didn't read in the books. I just was like, let me go see the second to last Twilight movie. See if I can kind of piece together. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I don't think I would be really excited about a baseball movie as well. Like baseball movies just don't sound that exciting to me. Maybe this is like blasphemy to Patrick because I mean, Patrick is like a baseball dude. I'm definitely not a baseball dude. I mean, like I'm a, I'm a Dodgers fan, but it's mostly by circumstance because I work at a bar. So that for like for the last three seasons, we've been streaming every game and I just kind of caught on to the vibe and like started catching on to the vernacular and the players names and stuff like stuff like that. Bought a Dodgers hat. There's, started... <laughs> dude, there's no really escaping it. If you work in a bar in Southern California and being a Dodgers fan, it's like, ingratiated into you so now whenever i watch this movie and i've watched it several times yeah. uh with with patrick is the first time i was like i'm gonna sit down and watch this now whenever i watch it i text patrick hey i'm watching <laughs> i'm yeah. watching Moneyball. and the, yeah, the we, two we, other we, movies we, that he introduced me to and i always met text him whenever i watch it is so it's it's uh Moneyball, uh american psycho which is a compliment <laughs> uh and uh, blade runner uh, the original. Yeah, when those movies cross your mind. I get a text. Yeah, because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna put these on. Because those three, for whatever reason, those three are always on Netflix. Like Netflix does not get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, so constant go to you. Um, yeah, we had we had wanted to do a sports movie. We thought it'd be a, a cool uh, episode to do a sports movie, and we we uh, ended up on Moneyball. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just it's reciprocal. Every time I think about Moneyball now, I think about you, Joey. So you gotta have Joey on. Well, the big thing, the yeah, exciting I, thing about a sports movie for me is that like I have no idea about sports, and I know Patrick has like just like a plethora of information inside of his mind. So it makes me eager to like get that information out of his head for this. <laughs> totally. I uh, I I joke. I mean, I did do this, but like last night in preparation, I watched uh, Longest Yard. <laughs> <laughs> that to me, I, if we were talking about sports movies. That I mean, that is possibly because of how much I watched it from the ages of eleven to fourteen. That might just by that number alone be the movie I've seen the most in my life. Because I was also <laughs> my parents, my dad had a van that had like a little DVD like screen on it. Yeah. 
So I would watch that whenever I was in the car with him. So I did watch that movie a lot and then haven't watched it for several years. And <laughs> yes, it's a very much 2005 Adam Sandler comedy, but it, so it's very of its time, but I do like sports movies. I don't, I, I don't, I do not mind them um, at all. I like them. I mean, God knows I was born in 1993. So I did watch space jam a lot growing up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I no, I have no feelings about basketball until like my like mid to late twenties when I started getting into basketball. Yeah, it's it's true. Watched. I, go ahead. <laughs> I was yeah, I watched Angels in the Outfield a lot as a kid. Again, same story. Did not watch baseball a lot growing up. Yeah, definitely. But there's like a magical element to that conversation recently, right? So he's like, uh, I haven't seen that in a long time. Angels Which one? Oh, Angels uh, in the Outfield. Yeah, it ended up being. Uh, uh, wh- whoever we were with, uh, we were talking about. It. I think it was at your bachelor party. We were talking about it, and uh, yeah, Sergio brought it up. Yeah, Sergio brought it up, and it's a stacked cast, right? Stacked yeah, cast. yeah, they were talking Chris about Gordon Levitt, Danny Glover, Christ- Christopher Lloyd, yeah. Danny Glover. That's uh, it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's more. I'm gonna go to. Yeah, I think it's like the, the the like the lower credits that are just kind of impressive. Uh, two of the guys that were talking about it, and how it's like a secretly stacked cast. When you watch the movie, it's just like actor after actor after name. But um, yeah, it's not that I'm not excited about a sports movie. Like, you know, I was into Rudy, obviously. <laughs> I don't know why that's obvious. Oh, I didn't see Rudy until I had Patrick showed it to me. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's another one I'm going to text him every time I watch it. Uh, Patrick, I, I mean, because you're like a f- fairly like a cerebral intellectual guy. Um, oh, my God. Adrian Brody and Matthew McConaughey. They're <laughs> just in the outfield. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I remember being surprised. Yeah, Sergio mentioned that. I remember being surprised. Like, yeah. Like, Adrian Brody is like one of those dudes that like, I'm like fairly stoked to see at any point. So as I was getting into baseball at the bar, like the fandom is infectious. Like you get into this. Well, one, my tips depend on it because you need to be able to talk about these things. And uh, sure. two, it's just uh, there's like a vibe to it, to, to, to the fandom. There's like a certain vibe to it. Patrick, I'm going to ask you like what? What do you think fundamentally makes baseball different from other sports? Because I find myself like not able to get into other sports as I do into baseball. And I just wanted to know your thoughts about like fundamentally what, like what's the difference? I think uh, baseball, um, the appeal to baseball is that it's like so ingrained in the culture just uh, historically. Um, and also it, um, the, the pace of the game unfolds, at a rate where like, you can you can talk to people around you about what's going on in the game in real time uh, and kind of like speculate and um, you can kind of think about what the pitcher is, is thinking in any situation or, and you can kind of see these little um, interactions between players on the field as they're happening and you can kind of talk to the person next to you about it. Um, and uh, I think, I, I think that's like the appeal of baseball and it's um like if you were to compress all of the actual action in a baseball game yeah. and take a, take out all of the time where they're just standing around, it's it's like five minutes of action or something. <laughs> like that. Um, and it's like a three hour game. Uh, and that's like, um, that's, you know, it can be boring, but that's also the charm of it too, is that it's, that it's um, boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I like, nowadays like it's hard for me to watch a whole game but when i was a kid i watched every single game like when, for every single dodger game that came on i watched it and uh um you, i got like intimately familiar with like all of the players and uh, all of the opposing play like uh players on opposing teams 
um, like I know like all the stories and things like that. And um, that's what's like a real appeal uh, of the game to me is um, how, how deep it is. And uh, Moneyball, like I think is like the perfect baseball movie for baseball fans uh-huh. um, because uh, fans uh, geek out about stats. Like that's, that's the other thing about baseball is it's like a total nerd sport because there's a wealth of uh, uh, stats and history to the game. Um, and, uh, you know, like, we'll get into like Moneyball and um, why it's such a, a, like a significant like moment in the history of baseball and like, you know. The, Are you referring to the movie or the concept of Moneyball in general? <laughs> Uh, the movie, yeah, yeah, and and just the, like the period of, of time in in uh, baseball history, the early two thousands, where analytics really took off. Yeah, because like as like I'm sure you guys picked up, it's um, there's this whole like uh, traditional element of baseball, which is also another one of its charms. It, it's a bug in in the culture of baseball that. Um, it's like very, very traditional and uh, set in its ways and um, conventional. Um, it doesn't really tolerate like people doing things outside of the norm. Like yeah. for example, like in recent years, um, there's all like all kinds of like um, people get angry when people celebrate like too much. Like if they hit a home run <laughs> and they're like dancing around and celebrating, like they think like a lot of like the conventional like um, etiquette around that is that you don't do that. Like it's, it's unprofessional. It's a disrespect, disrespectful to the game and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what was the, th- what was the thing that happened like last year or during COVID season where like they one they had a uh, position player on the mound and like, it was a certain point in the pitching order that you're not supposed to swing at, but he did anyways and he hit a home run. Oh yeah, that was uh, Tony Larusa, the manager of. Uh, this is a great example, and, and like this theme goes, um, is recurs in Moneyball over and over again. This conflict between uh, the conventional way of doing things and and the new the newer methods or new, uh, um, uh, you know, running against the against the grain of the old culture. Yeah, it's but kind totally of the central conflict. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's like the central conflict. And uh, this example Joey brought up, Tony Larusa um, is this. He's like a revered old manager. Um, he's in fact, I think he managed the Oakland A's back in the nineteen eighties. Um, and I'd like to get into the history of the Oakland A's, but I'll come back to it. But um, he managed. He's been a manager for like the last thirty years, forty years, and before that, he was a player. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there's this unwritten rule in baseball that if, like, if you have the lead um, and you have a three zero count, like you do not swing. Like you let the pitcher throw a strike, and then you, uh, and then maybe you swing at on the three and one count. Mm. Uh, and Tony Larusa, the manager um, of I think he's the White Sox manager now. Um, gave this sign to this young player, like uh, uh, the White Sox had the lead. It was a 3-0 count. He gave the sign to the uh, young hitter to not swing. And um, the pitcher, you know, expecting 
the opposing because the, everybody knows these unwritten rules. Uh, the pitcher knew um, in this situation the hitter would not swing, so he just threw like a meatball fastball right down the plate, mm. and the hitter just was like swung and crushed a home run. And uh, so he, he hit a home run for his team, uh, but he broke the unwritten rule and he and he disobeyed his manager. So he um, like it was like a real like big issue in the press and all that stuff. Like it's kind of weird that uh, it's kind of like a tempest in a teapot kind of thing. But like this kind of stuff happens in baseball all the time. Yeah, it's also like to not get too deep into baseball, which again I can't even claim to get that deep in baseball, but. Like the team, the guy who hit the home run was on a team that was up so much that they didn't have any pitchers on the mound. They had like <laughs> their backup center fielder throwing the ball. Like, like his job is not to pitch, but they were so out of pitchers because the score was like 20 to zero or whatever. Yeah. They were like, let's just get anybody up there. Because, you know, pitchers, I will say pitchers of all positions in sports, that is a position that like, wears out super fast and like uh-huh. you can get like injured super easily and uh, certainly evolved baseball. That's probably the, that's probably the position I'm pulling this out of thin air that probably gets injured the most or like is, has the highest probability of to get injured. I mean, I think yeah. it's because of the unnatural positioning of like throwing a baseball. It's just like a not a natural thing for the human body to do. Um, Joey, do you have like a, does like baseball hold a special place in your life or like what's it's your so experience? Funny, not, not really. Cause I, I didn't like sports growing up. Um, I only really got into sports like right after I graduated high school is when I got into football because my friends were playing fantasy football. Yeah. And then once I got into, I was into football for a while, then like, okay, basketball, come on or baseball, come on. And those kind of like jockeyed position for like my second favorite sport. Yeah. Now at, you know, uh, similar vein, I don't think I could watch, I don't would, I would never turn on a baseball game, mm. but if I'm at a bar or a restaurant, yeah. it's on, that's the thing I'm going to focus on for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Unless it's playoff baseball, which is inherently interesting because I think that the issue with baseball is that there's like 150 odd games, so and it, or even more than that. So it's like the fact that you can lose 50 games in a season and like how many games are there? 162. Yeah, 162. There's 162 games in a year. The fact that you can lose 60 games, 70 games, and still probably go to playoffs. Yeah. It seems crazy to me. It's an incredibly long season. It's kind of cool that you can, you have like so much time to like either catch up with it or like jump in on it. That's what I really like about it is that, you know, you can go like two, three months in and you can still just get in at like a really sweet spot in yeah, the season. Yeah, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Well, now that we're on the subject of baseball and haven't really got about the movie, I want to make a little segue. I invited my friend Brian here and he couldn't make it today, but he had some thoughts about, well, because he's a huge baseball guy too. He had some thoughts about what the movie gets wrong and I was <laughs> wondering. I just kind of want to open with this so we can like start talking about the movie. This is a direct quote. He sent me this text. He says, the movie conveniently makes no mention of Zito, Mulder, or Hudson. These were the three of the best pictures in the league at the time. They were all young and pre-salary arbitration, so they were paid next to nothing as far as baseball players go. The yeah. whole movie predicates that this dude built a magical team with no money to spend. But when you have a core of guys like that pitching, it doesn't take a whole lot to build a competitive team. What do you think about that? He's totally right. Yeah. Um, there are more players I would add to that list who were um, like key performers on that team. Yeah. Uh, so that basically this movie is laying out that Billy Bean with no money flipped conventional baseball wisdom on its head and found value in players that nobody else could find and built a winning team out of that. Uh-huh. Uh, Barry Zito, uh, Hudson, 
Um, there are more players, uh, Miguel Tejada, Eric Chavez. Um, those were like the top performers on that team. Mm-hmm. They're not talked about in this movie like at all. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that is like, it doesn't, it's not consistent with that narrative of, um, like these were not players that, um, people undervalued like conventional baseball wisdom undervalued. Like these were conventionally scouted players and they came up through the system. Uh-huh. Like all of those scouts that, uh, come off like complete idiots in the room. Like those, those guys, uh, scouted those players. Uh, and those were like the most important role players on that, on that team. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the, I think the overall message of the movie is that he was sort of wrong. Like he never got his win. You know, yeah. Like I, yeah. I feel like the overall. Fact, there was a period, um, the Oakland A's. There was a period in the late two thousands where, like, they had like a losing record for like five years in a row. So he was like still taking this approach. Yeah. Uh, and there could be m- multiple reasons for that. It could be that he is wrong, and it, and he's just not as good of a general manager as the movie makes him out to be. Um, but also it could, you know, it's, it could also be that the league is catching up to his philosophy. It's like an advantage is in competitive sports, um, an advantage that nobody else is uh, taking, is exploiting. It, it won't be a competitive advantage for long when, once everybody starts doing it. Yeah. And the rich teams are going to start doing it better than, the Oakland A's because they just have more resources. But that's basically how baseball functions now, right? Or a lot of sports, they're looking more at these analytics. Yeah. There's been an analytics revolution uh, going on in, in sports the last 20 years. Uh, this, like the gist of the movie is still accurate, even though like, um, uh, you know, Brian is totally right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you still need dramatic tension and story structure and all that. Yeah. Like, I think there was some complaints that the things didn't happen in the order that they do in the movie or like on the same day, like when yeah. he acts as those two players, I think it's a uh, Pena and Giambi like gets rid of them all in like one fell swoop. Yeah. Um, yeah. People were complaining like that didn't happen like the same time, but it's a fucking excellent scene. You can't start Pena first tonight. You'll have to start Hatterberg. Yeah. I don't want to go 15 rounds, Billy. The lineup card is mine. And that's all. Okay, the lineup card is definitely yours. I'm just saying you can't start paying it first. Well, I am starting him at first. I don't think so. He plays for Detroit now. You are outside your mind. Yeah, Coco. Want to see me? Yeah, Jeremy, grab a seat. Jeremy, you've been traded to the Phillies. You're a good ball player, Jeremy. And we wish you the best. Jeremy's gone too. Yeah. I literally wrote down in my notes is like, did the, did the daughter, is the daughter even a real character in the book? Like, cause I was gonna say, she's such a, like a, I want to be measured with my response. She is kind of like a heavy handed, like emotional, like weight in the movie. Like yeah. I have written down. It's like, it's like, yeah, Billy Bean, we'll probably get into more of this. Like, so Billy Bean was this hot shot out of, uh, high school that drafted super high or whatever, and yeah. then he flames out. Yeah. And now he's the manager that you know he's the GM of the um, of the A's. And then like also like in the movie, like it's like it kind of feels like he's trying to prove something to his daughter a little bit, or like trying to be his daughter's like hero. Yeah. And, like this feels like this is written. This feels like a movie decision as opposed to like this is what happened. 
I could be completely off base, and that could definitely have happened. It definitely feels like a movie decision, but uh, like to build toward his character, it, it definitely feels like in service of his character. But I think it's really interesting the way the dynamic works because they kind of like she's like unmentioned until she is mentioned. You know what I mean? Um, yes. I think he's like reminded when uh, when um, what's the the first baseman, the guy that they trained for first base. Oh, it's got Hatterberg. Yeah, Hatterberg. Chris Pratt. Yeah, exactly. Chris Pratt playing now Hatterberg. Um, when he says, "Do you have kids?" and like the next scene is the first scene we see his daughter in. But um, Joey, if you were to say this movie was like about one thing, what do you think this movie is about? Uh, I think that fundamentally, it's uh, it's a duality between the one of the oldest tropes in all of media. It's like don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Uh, in both directions, because again, Billy Bean was supposed to be this hot shot. He signed right out of high school. He didn't go to college, uh, which probably would have done him better for his career is if he did go to college or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the inverse of that is true too. Well, traditionally the inverse is what's played more often, which is like, Hey, this guy is a little weird or off, but he's actually really great at his job. If you look at the analytics. Yeah. So it's that duality, but then it's also about like, I don't know, trying to like prove something like yes in a, almost like a reckless degree yes uh, this is what i love about billy bean's character yeah. in moneyball is that he is taking like he's being he's a champion for rationality and science right yeah. but it's, it's not he's not purely motivated by that no he's motivated by he's motivated by this grudge he has to yes. uh, prove conventional scouting wrong yeah. Uh, so that's like a totally irrational motivation. This motivation. is the thing I picked up on this time that I thought was really interesting. Like the through line in the story. Like I used to think, I saw the, like the struggle, like, Oh, this is the old way. This is the new way. But when I was like taking it for its totality, I realized like Billy, Billy Bean is like really the hero of the movie. He's a complicated character, but what I see as the central conflict is that Billy needs to understand this game differently to accept what's happened to him in the past. And it's yeah. like, it's like he's sort of unpacking this trauma because this thing was like so, like, it strongly affected like who he is. And it, it, what it reminds me of is like, um, uh, like somebody who was like beat as a child and like they swear is because their dad loved them, you know? Like he's yeah. trying to reconcile this love for the game and he needs to see it differently to like continue loving the game. Yeah, it, that's totally right. Like his, um, what's, but it's a strange inversion because. Like that fucked him up when he was a when he was a young man. Yeah. Um, because of expectation. Yeah. He was supposed to succeed. It gets uh, quite a bit deeper uh, in the book and and actually paints Billy as like a really sympathetic character. Uh-huh. Because he like had an identity crisis when he uh, got drafted and went to the minors and didn't succeed. Yeah. Because he his whole life up to that point he was good at everything he ever did. And the scouts were telling him, you're going to be a superstar. He was drafted uh, number two by the New York Mets. Mm-hmm. Um, they drafted Daryl Strawberry number one. Daryl mm. Strawberry went, like, hit 300 home runs in the major leagues. Yeah. Uh, Billy Bean was, like, even a better athlete than Daryl Strawberry. Yeah. Uh, he uh, was a five-tool player. Like, this movie is a really is, – is awesome because it explains that concept, like, really simply, you know – a player that like most players in the pros have like one or two um, great tools and they, like they try to develop another one. Very rare do you come upon a young man like Billy who can run, who can field, who can throw, who can hit and who can hit with power. Those five tools, you don't see that very often. 
Most of the youngsters we, that we, we have an interest in have one or two tools, and we're hoping to develop an extra one. Your son has five. I mean, we're, lo we're looking at a guy that's a potential superstar for us in New York, and the time is right now to get him started. Um, yeah. The five-tool player is like this unicorn that can do everything in the game and do it at a superior level. Yeah. Um, so I think guys like Ken Griffey Jr. or Mike Trout, like those are five-tool players. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those are guys that have, like, the potential to be a Hall of Famer. And so, like, they, these scouts were telling him, um, that you're going to be that good. And when he went into the minors, like he started, like he couldn't perform and, um, it like totally destroyed his identity. It like totally screwed him up psychologically. Yeah. And I think the movie also acknowledges that like there's, we talked about chaos theory with Jurassic Park, but there's factors that there's no way that you can include them in any sort of equation. The movie acknowledges these things. They acknowledge it with the career of Billy Bean. Um, there's just so many things that you can't account for. And I think this is like where the daughter enters into the equation for the character of Billy Bean. Like you couldn't have accounted for this equation or, and like how their relationship develops, even in like the small space that it does in this movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and he decides to take responsibility for her as he, cause they have this whole montage where Billy does like, he's, he's like staying away from the team. He doesn't travel with the team. He keeps a distance from the team and then he starts engaging with them. And then that's like when they become stronger and better at what they're doing. And at the same time, there's like this parallel Billy being developing a relationship with his daughter. And that's eventually what keeps him like in Oakland at the end of the movie. I think. Yeah. Sure, I, think I, think, also, I don't think it's also that, um, also that like, uh, insistence on wanting to win with Oakland, which uh, still hasn't to this day. He still works with Oakland, but um, still hasn't won. That's why. Were you going to yeah, say, Jay? I, I forgot. I was going to say, I forgot, which I think is a part of the why he doesn't go to Boston. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but because he still, because he still has to get, drop his daughter off at an airport. Yeah. So I know that I think she's on the West coast, maybe like San Diego. I, I don't know where, but in the movie, they, <laughs> let's they just clearly, say San Diego. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean like, you know, to get on a plane, I don't know. But my point is that if they were going going from California to Boston, it's a much bigger deal yeah. than going from, like, Oakland to, you know, L.A. or San Diego or Orange County or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I was talking like, – oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was like, don't they show – because they because Billy Bean goes to his ex-wife's house. Yeah. Do they show where that – like, Oh, yeah, 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 he does, and it's, like, on the beach or something. Yeah, I get the impression that, like uh, – uh, so that's Spike Jones. He has a cameo, right? Um, yeah, that is Spike Jones. Yeah. I would never recognize him. I have no idea what that dude looks like. <laughs> yeah. I thought that dialogue, that exchange between him and uh, Spike Jones was actually pretty sweet. Cause, um, uh, the, the clue there is he mispronounces Giambi's name. Yeah. Like he doesn't know baseball, but he's trying to connect with uh, Billy. So he's like, you, you lost Giam, Giambani? Yeah. And this is the yeah. thing. Yeah. I think they're, What's interesting about Brad Pitt's character is this confidence factor because all these scouts are talking about confidence and Brad Pitt in this movie is supremely confident. I think that's why he was like, they cast him because he's yeah. just like this confident character. And, and when they're going through the, this montage of like his career going down the drain, 
confidence isn't the problem. He's like a confident person. It's just like sometimes you just can't account for the things that aren't there. Um, and I think there's a lot of playing with confidence with Brad Pitt's character. Like the way he interacts with people has a lot to do with his confidence. Like when he interacts with Jonah Hill's character, like it's the non-confident guy and the confident guy. And he understands that confidence isn't an important factor when it comes to Jonah Hill's character. He's the man with the information you know, he's the man that's like able to, to change the game. There's like confidence. Um, there's confidence. Well, there's an all time. There's an all time line of dialogue in the movie of of the scouts with these old timey thought process going like, oh, he's got an ugly girlfriend. He yeah. Can't be good, <laughs> <laughs> ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Yeah. Uh, no one's kind of addressing that. Like, and they're all, they're all just kind of listening to that. Like, I, it's, I, I, I think that this is probably, again, a movie decision where like, literally that scouting department is all like 80 year old guys like they're yeah. a billion years old and then brad pitt is like you know i mean even in 2011 he's probably in his late 30s early 40s but he looks like he's 33 maybe yeah he's just like a fucking beast in this movie and that's what i'm talking about is that they're playing with this idea like they i think as like in casting brad pitt they're saying that like confidence is like not not important you know what i mean because <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of how like he's running his world like in his interaction with uh, his ex-wife's new husband a lot of confidence like like exuding from him like he's just kind of like like dominating that scene i think confidence mm -hmm. confidence is like a major issue when he's talking to his daughter because she's in the guitar store playing this guitar and he's like he's just telling her that she needs to be more confident she didn't be seen so so i think the movie is not ignoring this aspects that confidence is important, but I think Billy Bean understands that it's not everything. And I yeah. think it's well balanced in that way. I was, I was just gonna say like, so Billy um, has an idea as to why he failed as a baseball player. He, th he thinks it was um, uh, his temper was like a huge part of it, uh, which comes through in the movie. You know, like there's countless scenes where he's like flipping over his desk or throwing chairs. And yeah. Like that. Um, which uh, baseball is a, a game like, based on failure like you you fail most of the time um yeah but like in in high school baseball like the best player on the team is gonna hit like higher than 500 um so it's that's not really true in high school baseball the best player on the team will actually succeed more than he fails uh -huh. but at the professional level level even the best players fail um seven out of ten times um and uh so in the minors like when he started like failing for the first time in his life as like, you know, an 18 year old, 18 year old kid, like he, he couldn't handle that and would just like blow up and like break bats. And, um, like he would, you know, after he would strike out, like nobody would want to like look at him because he would just like blow up. Um, that was like, are you talking about from his real life? Like this is what happened. Yeah. In real life. Yeah. In real life. yeah. Um, to kind of pivot and change subjects. I think it's a very interesting case study between Billy Bean based on his book and based on the movie compared to another great sports series, I guess, but the, um, the, uh, last dance, the Michael Jordan docuseries. Uh -huh. Oh, that was fantastic. Bring that up. Cause I, cause it, as you know, I'm sure people know, but there was a minute in which Michael Jordan played minor league baseball. Yeah. He wanted to play. Supposedly the story goes that he, Growing up, he wanted to play baseball. He didn't. He he liked basketball, but he wanted to be a major league baseball player. Obviously, he then became arguably the greatest of all time uh, basketball player. So everything worked out. But during his re er, first first retirement, um, 
he went to play for the Chicago White Sox organization, and they talk about him going immediately to double A, which is like a little bit more advanced minor league than say like opening like single A. I mean, it's it's duh. It's like no like no kidding. Double A is harder than single A. <laughs> All of which to say, even um, in the in the the owner of the thing was like, listen, uh, even in this minor league thing when they first got. You know, when he first got there, he was doing good, but then once he got into the meat and potatoes of like being in the baseball season, his his production dropped off so hard and how fast they talk about they talk about breaking balls. It's like Michael Jordan probably didn't see a breaking ball his first sixty at bats, but once they start once they figured out his thing, his his numbers plummeted. And this is going from the greatest basketball player of all time to dropping to being one of the worst double A baseball players. Uh, <laughs> but even but even then they say supposedly, and this is what the owner says, he's like had he had a 1,500 bat bats, he would have made it to major league because he kind of turned his batting around uh-huh. eventually. So all of which to say, it is an interesting the the dichotomy of like um, Billy Bean, who was a hotshot in high school, failed in the minor leagues and never really p- p- pieced it together. Yeah, compared to Michael Jordan, who was a huge success on the basketball court. Yeah, and obviously struggled in baseball. Yeah, so that's kind of that's like the reverse story, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, because if you watch that documentary, The Last Dance, and you see Michael Jordan, I mean, it's clear that he's like a born leader. Like, he carries himself in this yeah. way where you just know that he's just like the biggest man in the room. Like, you know he's going to change yeah. the, the feel of a room as soon as he walks into it, which is a really interesting thing to see. Like, when, especially when you see him in person. I don't know if you've, like, met, like, when I meet, like, a like a real, like, I guess, like, alpha male is the term. Like, I'm just like, oh, shit, that's what that looks like. It's like a palpable thing, which, like, kind of fucking blows my mind. Tying everything together, docu-series and now baseball. I will pitch and plug that I can't believe how much I liked it, but I loved Ken Burns baseball. Oh, yeah. It is. It's honestly maybe so boring that it's compelling. Like it's so (laughs) like the first two episodes by like episode three, they finally get into the 1900s. <laughs> I second that recommendation. Ken Burns baseball is amazing. It's so and this, and then this goes back to what Patrick was talking about with these analytics is like they didn't have certain stats up until 10, 15 years ago, but they've always been playing baseball for, you know, 150, 200 years or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so you can look back at those numbers back in the day and see how their stats translate out now. Yeah. Uh, which is always super interesting. Like I think Patrick, you've talked about war, which is wins above replacement, which I think has only been around for 20 yeah. years. Last 10, 15 years. Yeah, that, that's a new metric, which I don't I don't understand it enough to, like, say. What, what is it? Is, but Wins above are. replacement. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, basically, it's uh, they, they compare every player uh, to a, um, a, a hypothetical replacement player who's generally produces about um, as much as a minor league player would. Yeah. Uh, so, like, uh, you're – you basically boil that. Um, uh, it's like one number boiled down to compare everyone to them to others. And it's like because uh, you know position players are like apples and pears. You know, it's like how do you compare the value that a first baseman contributes to your team uh, with the value that a pitcher contributes to your team? Yeah. So they they boil uh, it down to wins. If you type in so and so again, that metric came out 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago, somewhere in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. But if you look at if you type in uh, war career war uh, uh, wins about uh, uh, replacement or whatever it is uh, mm-hmm. leader, it's Babe Ruth still. 
Mm. Babe Ruth, Walter Johnson, Cy Young. These are all people who played, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 20s. And then it gets to Barry Bonds, who retired in, like, 2006. So, like, this metric – so that's what the interesting thing about baseball is all these stats exist in a nebulous, and it's up to the interpreter to figure out what they mean for you and your team. And that is what I do find interesting about baseball. Again, though, could I sit down and watch a baseball game that's not playoff? That's a bit challenging. (laughs) Baseball is the best uh, sport for – for eggheads, like it's, it's what does like that mean? It's, it's the best because there's a wealth of data, so yeah. you can go back to 1901 and you know and you have all of the data. You have all of the and and um, because every team plays 162 games a year. Oh, that, um, okay. There's a well, like there's so many numbers. You just seen that, like tied it all together for me. I was like, how is that not true of every other sport? Because I'm sure they collect stats, but the fact that there's so many games per season makes perfect sense. Like he says in the movie, like the sample size, you know? Yeah, the sample sizes are so huge. Um, So just check this out. Like 2,430 games are played every year. Yeah. uh, Just in the regular season. That doesn't count playoffs. Yeah. And that's that's like 165,000 at bats. Yeah, Every that um, you know, it's a it's a statistician's dream. Yeah, and that's why that's why um, the ana- like the sports analytics uh, revolution happened with baseball first. Yeah, because, uh, it, I mean they've been tracking the stats forever. Uh, the organization, so there's a there's a term called sabermetrics. Um, mm. uh, the organization. It's named after an organization called the, uh, I think it's like the Society for American Baseball Research or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just like nerds who are into baseball that like aren't even athletes, but they just like to crunch numbers <laughs> and, and try to find the, the real value in players and, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting in that way. I think that's why it gets my attention. There's like a really like heady element to the sport. Um People, I think people, I, I, oh, go ahead, Joey. Well, I'll say of all sports, I mean, all sports have, have the quote unquote, any given Sunday, which is the notion that sometimes you can just throw all of the rules out the window and the team that should never win have won. And the team that, you know, should be dominating does poorly. Yeah. That's just the thing. It does feel like with baseball, they're almost like trying to eliminate that as much as possible. Yeah. Whereas with football, it's a little bit more, I think football of all sports probably has the highest chance to be like, hey, this team that should have blown out this other team got decimated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, uh, that happens the most frequently, I feel like, with baseball. Basketball's probably yeah. up next. And then, but baseball feels like that's such a rare thing. I mean, uh, I mean, if it, which tying it back to this movie, the year before the movie takes place, 2001 or so, mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't think they get into it too much, but, like, they knew they had a talented roster, but I think even they were surprised about how far they got as a team. Yeah. Not the 2002, that the movie, but the year before with Giambi who gets mm-hmm. all these guys. Um, I mean, I think they got, they got, they got scouted to be good players, but I don't know if they got scouted to be as good as they ended up being. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a, like a, a faction of people who understand baseball in a very cerebral way, but I think there's also a faction of people who understand baseball in a very spiritual way. And in my like very limited perspective of this, and I, I, I see it in a very practical way. It's, it's because it's not because this is my theory is like, there's a certain isolation to the game where everyone's like super far apart. It's a certain placement. There's a certain, um, a meditative pace 
to the game. Uh, do you find that there's like some spiritual aspects in your appreciation of the game, Patrick? Yeah. Um, and I, I think this movie captures it perfectly. Um, and especially, uh, the conflict between, um, rationality analytics and that traditional, um, intuitive superstitious, um, uh, kind of mystical aspect of the game. Um, and in particular in one line of dialogue when he's, uh, when he's um, uh, interviewing for the Red Sox general general manager job at yeah. the end, um, Billy Bean says, "I believe science can offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. Yeah. Like, the curse of the Bambino. You know, the Red Sox uh, traded away Babe Ruth uh, before Babe Ruth. It was before it was apparent that uh, Babe Ruth was going to be Babe Ruth. Oh, okay, and they never won a World Series after that." for 80 years or whatever. And, um, that kind of like, um, superstitious element of baseball is very much, very much there in that, in the legacy of the Boston Red Sox. It's like that they're cursed. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, there's like a lot of that, like mystical thinking and, and, um, in baseball and, and intuition. Um, and you know, even Billy Bean, in this movie is superstitious. Exactly. Is, uh, I, I love that he's superstitious. Like yeah. he cannot, he can't totally get away from, um, these, uh, like intangible, um, forces in the game that they still don't know. Yeah. Uh, like they still don't know everything about the game yeah. and it, it like causes him to behave irrationally. Yeah. He won't look at scores. Um, he, uh, uh I think I feel like there's more examples that uh, I, I'm not thinking of. But, yeah, yeah, no, they're totally. Yeah, um, Joey, are there like specific scenes that have struck a chord with you in your repeated viewings with this? Yeah, the mo- the scenes that pop out to me, and I wrote them down on my notes um, because, like, they. Uh, I, I mean, the the first one that jumps into my mind is, of course. Um, uh, uh, he gets on base, which is the, it's, it's a scene in which Billy Bean is in the scouting room uh-huh. for the first time. And he's explaining like, cause then the scouts are like, okay, we want this guy, this guy, and this guy. And then Bean's like, nope, here's what you're doing is you're trying to replace Giambi, uh, with one-on-one, but you have to replace Giambi in the aggregate. And then he throws up, uh, Giambi's brother, David justice. And like, um, uh, the Chris Pratt character. Yes. And all, all of the, like, just seeing the entire scout room go like, oh, my God, I can't believe. <laughs> you want David Justice, who at the time was, like, 38 or 37 or whatever. Yeah. Well tenured into his baseball career. Uh, and I, I always think about the line, it's like, David Justice will sell tickets early in the season, but come the dog days of June or July, he'll be, he'll, we'll be lucky if he bats his weight. Yeah. Um, which I'm like, that's such a great uh, line. And then again, it's like, you know, then Billy being like, I don't care about his batting average. I care about him getting on base. This is another interesting scene for me because uh, the factor of confidence comes into play because Billy insists that um, Jonah, I, I don't remember his character's name. Do you remember his character's? Uh, Peter Brandt. Peter, yeah, yeah, Peter Brandt. Um, he insists that Peter speaks for himself. He just points at Peter and makes him speak because he needs to assert his dominance. Like, uh, like... Billy understands that confidence is essential for these guys and that it works in a room. Like 
you know, it, it's just inextricable from like the process of like making this game happen or even being like a superstar in the world of baseball. Like, it, it's just uh, such a, a, which is interesting because he's also superstitious, but I think Billy Bean believes in the power of confidence, which, you know, he, he won't admit through a movie, but it's a through line through the movie. And you can see, right. you can see it play out in that scene too. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not an analytical position, you know, right. It's not, it's not just crunching the numbers. It's one of those intangible things that he's still holds onto and believes. Yeah. And like the, the other example, like I couldn't think of earlier was when he has the heart to heart with, uh, uh, David justice. Oh, I love like, that scene. How about you and I be honest about what each of us want out of this? I want to milk the last ounce of baseball you got in you. And you want to stay in the show. Let's do that. Now, I'm not paying you for the player you used to be. I'm paying you for the player you are right now. You're smart. You get what we're trying to do here. Make an example for the younger guys. Be a leader. You can do that? All right. I got you. I'm not paying you for the player you used to be. I'm paying you for the player right now. A huge uh, intangible thing that um, uh, is conventional wisdom in in baseball is like the importance of locker room culture and leadership. And, you know, that's not a number. Um, And so he's still still, um, a champion for that. And he goes to David Justice and is like, hey, I need you to be a leader and an example to the younger guys. That's part of why I'm paying you. And then it, another scene to me that sticks out. Well, the, the, then there's two more scenes that really stick out to me. I mean, there's, there, it's also so great. Uh, but I think they're, they're, they're the two inverses of each other. They're, they're, they're two sides of the uh, same coin, I guess. I don't, I don't know which metaphor is better. But it's, it's when, <laughs> it's when uh, Jonah Hill tells Billy Bean, I would have drafted you in the ninth. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. You drafted me in the first round. What? After I left, you looked me up in your computer. Would you have drafted me in the first round? I did, yeah. You, you were a good player. Cut the crap, man. Would you have drafted me in the first round? I'd have taken you in the ninth round. No signing bonus. I imagine you would have passed and taken the scholarship. Yeah. Because, Patrick, do you know, like, if it's in the book, why would Jonah, or why would uh, Peter Brand, um, why would he have drafted him in the ninth? Um, So one of the big things they get into in the book is uh, how much, uh, like, both Peter and Billy for, um, you know, they arrive to the same conclusion through different experience. Um, Peter is analytical and, and, uh, Billy experienced it firsthand, but they both hate drafting players right out of high school because they're unproven. Yeah. Uh, they prefer drafting college players because they've been playing at a more competitive level for a longer period of time. So they have more, uh, data to, to analyze. Um, and, uh, and that's like, um, that's a, a big reason why, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't, Peter wouldn't take the risk on, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take the risk of blowing a first round draft pick on a high school player. If he could uh, look at a right. college player, who has got a, a, you know, more experience and essentially um, there's not enough data. Yeah. There's not enough data and he doesn't go for that like good body nonsense, you know, which is like a, another thing that they harp on is like how superficial um, the scouts can be and how taken they can get with just 
the possibilities, you know, like if they just see like a dazzlingly talented athlete, they're like, Oh, he could be so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And because they go for right from that to like kind of explaining saber metri- saber metrics of like, or whatever it's called, um, of being <laughs> like, um, of being like, this is like, Oh, you know, people have this kind of these biases or these prejudices against certain things because, Oh, this guy's old, or this guy throws funny, which is a, which is a, I don't want to spoil, but that's a huge thing. That character is so great of the uh, pitcher who's a submariner. Uh, so the inverse of that, though, is right at the end of the movie, where the line that sticks out to me is like, "How could you not love baseball?" Which is when they're watching their really hefty second baseman. It's like, yeah, and I was like, "This guy is gonna do what he never does, and he's gonna turn the corner and run to second. Oh, they're laughing at him. Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. How can you not be romantic about baseball? And that's where he falls over. And then you see him, like, struggle to get back to first base. And then Billy Bean, Brad Pitt's character, goes, oh, they're all laughing at him. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you're about to find out why. It's because he's actually hit a home run. Yeah, because uh, again, the whole thing is that the second baseman, this you know, he was a probably again probably had his own prejudice against him because he's such a big guy, but he got on base and would you know get on first fairly consistently. Yeah, so much so that he's that he never runs to second. Like that's a metric they can they can do. Yeah, but this one time he does it, turns out he actually hit a home run. So yeah, he says, "How uh, can you not be romantic about baseball?" Which is so that, that's the that is the inverse of like going from the complete like the metrics and like the number stuff to going how could you not be romantic about baseball? Which I think that of all sports, there is a romance to baseball that I don't think any sport comes close to. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I love about baseball is you have both. Like you can get as analytical as you want, but like there are like these kind of like transcendent experiences in the game at times. You know, just really human stories and. Um, and narrative arcs and, um, and and transcendent moments where, like, because there are so many opportunities, um, occasionally you get outlier events that um, feel um, magical because they're rare. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, like, pretty I – mean, baseball especially. Like, I've had that experience. I've only been watching baseball for, like, three or four years. I've had that experience where it, like, feels fucking magical. Like, yeah. uh, he, he says when um, when they hit the home run, he's like, oh, yeah, fans love this. It sells tickets, but what does it matter? Like, I'm looking for the win, you know? Yeah. But it's, uh, that's absolutely right. Fans do love that shit. Like, when you see a team that's, like, completely down, like, it, any home run, like, matters. It's, like, so uh, – such a magical moment. And, like, there is, like, a really special thing about, like, sitting in the seats, like, having that conversation, eating that hot dog. He says all this. And that is, like, definitely part of the experience. Like, this is everything I bought into. Like, I now own two Dodger caps because of, like, this whole experience, like, surrounding the game, you know, the whole community about it. I think we, we would be wrong to not mention that Aaron Sorkin wrote this movie i mean he did he did write it with help but like aaron sorker is one of the most well-known screenwriters today um and he's mostly known for like his like really fast snappy dialogue i don't think like brad pitt is like quite at that speed and i think um he he had a co-writer steve Cellini, who wrote schindler's list so it's kind of both those things so it's not like quite at the sorkin speed but um I think of course this is a Sorkin product. There's no women in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and if there if there was, they would be a terrible character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's something I didn't. Again, speaking of Patrick introducing me stuff, that's where I saw West Wing, and I was like, 
West Wing's the greatest show ever. And then like I would why rewatched it and then like heard criticisms of Aaron Sorkin and I was like, okay, yeah, I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like his fail. Women are definitely his Achilles tendon. Like he's just not good at it. And then that's like yeah. over and over again. Like even now, like he just wrote that Lucy movie. It's just Let's not talk about it. There's a lot to it. But this is the year after he wrote Social Network, and I think people argue that that's, like, one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm not, like, of that mind, but, I mean, that's the caliber you're working with here. And, like, that's why the script is so good. And that's why, like, these these scenes, like, they're just built so well. And, like, I think my favorite scene in this movie, and this is a testament to Aaron Zirkin and Brad Pitt, is when um, he's sitting down with Jonah Hill and he's making the trades. That scene's fantastic. What is it about that scene that, like, really speaks to you? Is that the one where... Uh is that the one where he wants to clean house? He wants to trade Jeremy Giambi. He wants he to pick wants up Rincon. Yeah. Oh, he wants to get Rincon. Okay. So when, when they, uh, they basically get the money from the owner to, uh, uh, trade up and get Ricardo Rincon. Yeah. There's just yeah. like such like this fucking excitement, this back and forth. They even, I, I feel like they even, that, th- was, that was also like the, uh, the trade deadline too. Like they were like, I think that was the day of the travel, the, Date the trade deadline. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, yeah. He calls like the Mets and also like uh, national yeah, the Giants. The and, like, the Giants. Yeah, yeah, the Giants. Year, they they uh, like he'd say somebody and then he'd say somebody and be like, "Oh, I like that guy." Oh, you've never heard of that guy. You don't want him. Like, <laughs> I don't even know why we're doing this, but let's just do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Brad Pitt is putting in a hell of a performance. I love that he's constantly eating in this movie. Like every scene, he has something in his fucking mouth, and like this well, is that's. that's Brad Pitt to a T. He's eating in every single project he is. Yeah, and yeah. In all, all the Oceans movies, he's, he's eating. Yeah, I have like yeah this distinct memory of like his first shot in the Oceans movie where he's like chowing down on nachos, talking to George Clooney. <laughs> I think yeah. Brad Pitt is like one of like the few actors who acts mostly with his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> he's a real mouth actor. <laughs> um, but I really love what he's doing in this. Like, um, I mean, are you Brad Pitt fans? Like, I think I should ask that first of all. <laughs> yeah, I I uh I pretty much always like Brad Pitt and whatever. <laughs> I mean that's a, that's an easy thing to say. Yeah. The most I think he picks I think he picks good movies for himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I yeah. don't think that could I see him do something really depthful and I mean he gets he gets emotional in this movie, but like that is like almost a bonus to it as opposed to like actually the raw charisma. Yeah. His, yeah. <laughs> but he, I mean, he's such a charismatic, I mean, he's an effort. I mean, in terms of acting in this movie, I think hands down the most effortless actor in this movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman, like unreal. Oh, yeah. And playing such a specific emotion of like battling Brad Pitt for control over the team and kind of like a lower energy kind of like, like you can see that he's frustrated and they talk about it in the movie that he's like year to year contract. Yeah. He's like, I, you know, it's hard to have faith that this is going to work out if you only sign me year to year. Yeah. I think that's the thing I liked about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and I will miss is that he was not afraid to be relentlessly unlikable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, de- I mean, he just definitely did not, he does not feel like somebody who, he gets so lost into these characters, which is part of me that like rolls my eyes at saying, but honest to God, he's, he was incredible. I yeah. think about uh, boogie nights. I think he was so funny in that. Oh yeah. Um, that was him, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. He boogie was, nights. yeah. With the, yeah, he had the longer hair. He was kind of had like yeah. bringing that nervous energy. Um, I don't know if you've seen heart. Eight. And again, it's, it's so not like it's so effortless. Like I, I can't use uh, that's the word I see when I like you know sometimes when you see an actor and you're like you can tell that they're acting or like yeah. whatever or like yeah. 
good or bad, maybe they put a lot of effort into this scene or this character, but like, it's like, it's so easy to him, it feels like. Yeah, it feels like it's easy for him to discard his ego. Like, he doesn't care if you think he's in on the joke or like making fun of himself. Like, he's he's yes. in the character. Yeah, which is like, I mean, excellent to see. Uh, I mean, he, he sells every performance. Brad Pitt, I think his career is a little bit uneven, and I think it's because he, he kind of takes everything, you know? Like, he'll, he'll, he's just, like, n- not afraid to take a role. Like, I think he was in he was in Megamind. <laughs> but, well, you know, that was animated. I mean, I think Inglorious Bastards was a pretty good movie. I mean, it's a Tarantino, so yeah. those are at least, at least at least a six out of ten. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I but again, he was very charismatic and very... And I, saw, I was just saying, I love his performance in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, for sure. I think I think he gets a little overshadowed by uh, Christoph Waltz, but I mean, yeah. But I mean, yeah. But again, he, he's playing a charismatic kind of leader guy, aggressive, and like has enough intrigue and mystery about him that like makes him compelling. But I think the stuff that he 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 nails, he nails well. But I also think that like I, he only what he couldn't do what Philip Seymour Hoffman does in other movies. You know what I mean? Like I I don't think. No, there's no way. Yeah, uh, I I think he's limited in that sense where he can't take every role because his charisma is like so like you, you can't contain that like there's no way oh yeah he can play a loser probably. <laughs> yeah like what's the closest thing like true romance probably well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, for it. is it 12 monkeys i think that's like maybe 12 monkeys yeah he's yeah, yeah that's pretty yeah i mean but he is unhinged i think that that movie came out at a time where like we were rom- romanticizing characters like that with people who were a little unhinged and like you know just kind of like outside of their own minds. Um, oh my God. Brad Pitt is the executive producer of Lego masters. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any more scenes that you guys want to talk about before we uh, kind of wind this down a little bit? Um, yeah. I want to talk uh, if while we're on the subject of um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character he is supremely unlikable, which is like a credit to the performance. Uh, but yeah. there are a couple of redeeming moments when they're on the, um, winning streak like you really see that art Howe is for his guys you know like he's cheering on the team and and all that and uh, there's a a pivotal moment um when you kind of see the gears turning in art Howe's head where he's like okay i'm gonna lean into this money ball thing and Uh put adaberg in to pin it at the end of the game and it ends up with the home run um which is a, a super cool moment um and and just like um, another little kind of uh, bit of trivia with with this movie. All of those people are real people. Um, Art Howe, real baseball manager, yeah. he was not happy with how he was per- portrayed in the in the movie. I saw that, yeah. And, yeah, and people was, and, and and people kind of vouch for him, like, no, he was actually like pretty supportive. Yeah, he yeah. was on board, and yeah. Um, Grady Fuson, the the scout that gets fired in the movie, comes uh-huh. off. Like, total idiot you know i'm sure he i don't think i saw any comments from him yeah um, i mean that's a that's a that's another scene that i found like supremely excellent is like they're kind of their standoff yeah where it kind of they, they, they kind of like they're simmering and they're boiling and eventually grady puts his hand on brad pitt's shoulder and he slaps it away yeah hell yeah like the tension that builds in that moment yeah uh, yeah it's like an, it's, it's written so excellently yeah it's intense um yeah but uh that so like the dynamic between Billy and his like new approach is dynamic between Art Howe and Grady Fuson is is summed up so well at the end when he's interviewing um, the owner of the Red Sox uh-huh. 
he know like the Red Sox guy gets it perfectly. These guys feel like their livelihood is being threatened because like this is such a weird it's such it's such an unorthodox way of building a team yeah. that they literally cannot explain it when they um, go on a job interview. Yeah. So they're they're resistant. So it like it makes perfect sense. Like um, even if they are resistant, it doesn't. Um, it's not like uh, it's it's just like totally uncharitable to represent them as like total idiots. You know, like yeah. it's it's a rational it's a rational behavior. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, the only one we don't know for sure is, is this daughter character, if that's real, but everyone else seems to be. Yeah. Uh, it, it, can that not be confirmed? <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm it uh, So, I don't know, this is worth talking about, but Peter Brand, Johnny Hill's character's real name was Paul DePodesta. Uh-huh. Yeah, DePodesta. DePodesta? All right, yeah. whatever. Uh, just some <laughs> I don't think he wanted his real name used. I, I think I read something. I think in the book too. I don't think he liked it. Yeah, yeah. His real name is used in the book, but um, yeah, I think he just didn't want to be. Uh, okay, so according to Google, oh, sorry, the famous, famously, sorry, uh, he uh, he when he left the um, A's, he was the Dodgers uh, made the Dodgers manager. Uh-huh. I get into the Dodgers where he did get the Dodgers' first win in postseason history in, like, 16 years. Like they, oh, they, were, they would get to the postseason, but they would never, like, win a series or whatever. But yeah. he was the first one to win a series. But he did his sabermetrics thing, and it worked for the first year, but it kind of fell apart, like, later. Yeah. Okay, so I Googled, does Billy Bean have a daughter? <laughs> <laughs> Billy Bean has a daughter. Her name is Casey Bean, but... As of October 2020, she's in her late 30s. So, <laughs> in 2011, she would have been. Oh well, this took no, place in, in 2002. 2002. Yeah. Okay, 2002. So what's that? 20 years. 18, little 20 years ago. Yeah. So. Okay. So she would have been 12, which is about right. Casey right. Bean is her name on IMDb, so that is the character's name as well. There you go. Cracked, we cracked the oh, case, boys. Parties, uh, <laughs> she's asked to play that song on the guitar. Yeah, I don't know that yeah. song. I mean, like, I, I used to kind of hate that song as like when I first watched this movie. But like, the, the song is like speaking directly to themes in this, where like, hey, you, you just gotta chill and like enjoy this for the game that it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I what I do like is like the the consistent. Um, as soon as the movie starts, the credits. The credits are like in a certain font where it looks like you're watching the credits on a tube television. Like they're, I don't know if you call it pixelated, but it looks like you're watching it on a tube television. And so, like, we're introduced to this fact that, like, um, we're watching a movie that's about sort of like appearances or what you see on TV. And that's a continuing theme, too. And I like that we, like, we get that exposure, like, when we're first watching it. And um, they kind of play with this in a while, like, how, how, like, kind of how fickle the game and like how fickle people are about watching baseball and how he says, if we don't win the final game of the season, people aren't going to care about how much we change the game. Like it's not going to matter. And immediately after that scene, we get like a cut to the next scene where you get the announcer saying like, he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like supremely frustrating, but it's a consistent theme, which I really love. I don't know about you guys, but I almost cried 
cried twice this appearing of the movie and uh, and you were talking about him being superstitious and the first thing that like really got me emotional is when he's driving away and his daughter tells him to go back to the game and it's just oh, yeah. yeah and he like turns the car around and it's just like this fucking beautiful shot of him pulling off the freeway and the camera follows him to the off ramp and it's just like the whole motion in that scene like the sweeping into the sunset like I mean, that was squeezing some fucking tears out of me. Yeah, I got a little emotional when uh, they were on the streak. Yeah. Um, like that's a really uh, emotional part for me for some reason. Uh, and I think that's all true, too. They, went up, they, they have the, uh, you know, they have the uh, most wins for the AL at the time, at least. And uh, I think it's Bob Costas announcing, and he's talking about how, um, you know, like the fluke of probability that it is to win 20 games in a row. Uh-huh. Uh, like he's saying, yeah, you have to be good, but just look at the 1927 New York Yankees, the team that everyone seems to remember as the greatest team of all time. Mm-hmm. They won nine games uh, in a row that season, um, which is we can't help but like these like statistical flukes, like we still cannot help to think of, help but think of them as like something magical you know like this magical thing that happens you know we we can't in a movie that it's that's about just mathematics and analytics and um we still can't resist uh thinking of transcendent terms like yeah romanticizing baseball in a way yeah or almost like mystifying it (laughs) yeah yeah there's some magic to it i mean but i think you can feel that like watching it even as like a novice baseball watcher i think I mean, there is something that feels like pretty magical to it. Well, I, well, I think part of it too is I think it is so ingrained in our culture where, um, at the very least, baseball does boil down a lot to a guy throwing a ball at a guy with a stick. Like, so <laughs> you know, what I mean, like, I mean, like we can dress it up however we want to, but that is sixty percent, eighty percent of baseball is that, and the rest is like, you know, how far does he hit it? Who catches it? You know, does he get it across a certain like threshold? So I think like the ease of access, um, uh, one of the things I talk about with improv and I had a great teacher, Josh Nichols, who's uh-huh. a really amazing teacher. He's in Denver now. He talks about like with sports, he's like the thing that like why people get emotionally invested in sports is like, cause the outcomes are so, or the desired outcomes are so clear. You want to win. You don't want to lose. So that's, and he talks about that with improv and like yeah. motivations and like acting and stuff, like why motivations can get tricky, but in certain things, motivations are super clean and easy to understand because you know this team wants to win. And especially with, like, say, like, uh, uh, Billy Bean, who's like, I hate losing. I hate, hate it, hate it. Like, uh, seeing how much he genuinely hates losing. Yeah. Which, again, ties into, like, him flipping out whenever he would lose in minor league. Yeah. He says, um, I don't want to lose more than I want to win. I think, I think, yeah. that, I think yeah. that's the line. It's like, and those are two different things. <laughs> anything else you guys want to talk about? Do we miss anything? I feel like we got pretty far with this. Uh, I would say that, that uh, outside of um, the movie itself, I think this is the beginning of uh, Jonah Hill's more three-dimensional acting career. Yeah. I mean, I think he's really good at this. Uh, the, the scene especially that stuck out for me in his performance of this is the one in the parking lot where he's kind of explained to him how he sees baseball. 
Um, specifically, oh, yeah, I love yeah, that scene. Yeah, 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 that's really good. Um, he kind of chokes on I his. I would have drafted you in the ninth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that, but like uh, he says, uh, "Do I think he's worth that much?" And he kind of chokes on his like, "No." He's like, "No, no, no." Yeah, yeah. yeah he like looks over yeah. his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That just gets me every time. Oh, I was like, "That's the only time I'm like, oh, what this team gave Giambi this much money, right?" Like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, he's, he's doing some acting. What I, what I like about Jonah Hill's character, and what I think it's part of what makes Moneyball like the perfect baseball movie for a baseball fan, uh-huh. is that it kind of puts like you can imagine yourself as like a Peter Brand. You know, he's like if you're a baseball fan and you didn't and you weren't an athlete or. Um, you didn't have any hope of like being a really good baseball player yourself or whatever. Yeah. It's pretty awesome to see a guy like Peter Brand, like influencing the game. Yeah. He's a total dork. Yeah. They open up that space for people and he gets his moment of of glory too. I mean, uh, that scene I was referencing earlier when they were trying to make that trade for Rincon, like he he, kind of like seals a deal. He seems like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You see him as like, that's his first taste of like, he starts to act like a jock a little bit right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you love to see it. Because uh, there are things that change sports, not just baseball, but so much stuff. of uh, With basketball, with Steve, Steph Curry and the uh, Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. uh, if you don't, even if you don't know a lot about basketball, you know those guys shoot three-pointers a lot. Yeah. That shifted the league to being a more three-point because yes, the, the whole point of the three point is you do score them less frequently. Like they're not as consistent as a two point bucket. Yeah. Or you know driving to the lane or whatever. But if because they're worth that extra point, it just it does change it. Like you know if you score two out of five times, that's a that's the same amount of scoring as three out of five for two pointers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like how fast uh, football has it here and there because. Um, I mean, it goes back and forth. They talk about like, oh, it's a it's a pass heavy league now. But then it kind of, I think it's personally shifting back a little bit more towards run heavy because they have people like Derrick Henry and Dalvin Cook and a lot of these really great running backs. So, mm-hmm. so all these sports have these moments. Um, but it's interesting that with baseball, I feel like when they do happen, you know, like it's it's funny because they talk, they talk about this in um, um, God uh, in the in the baseball documentary you mentioned earlier, but like. You know, the, the first guy who they talk about the first guy who throws a curveball and how it's so mind bending mm-hmm. and like how people are like they like wanted to outlaw it. Like you couldn't do it. Like, <laughs> or they, they like they argue that it shouldn't be legal. But like, why yeah, they thought it was legal, because so it's uh, because you're intentionally deceiving the batter. It was ungentlemanly. So they uh, yeah. they wanted to ban it. <laughs> so, it's, so it's so funny. And then we talk about these sabermetrics that now at the end of the movie, it's according to the movie, and it's probably true that the, um, that the Red Sox win the series a year or two later, mm-hmm. because yeah, they do this whole, they do it. So it's, it's a proof that the system works, but also be that like how much parody there is in, um, in football and stuff, or excuse me, baseball, but there's parody in all over in every league. Yeah. Like, I think that yeah, despite the inequality, right. Because that's like such an important, um, that's like such an important uh, table setting is that the New York Yankees, the Red Sox, these are teams with payrolls over a hundred million dollars. The Oakland A's um, only their payrolls like $39 million. Um, and like 
like there were players at, at that time. I think A-Rod had got his big contract around this time. No, I think he was still playing for the Mariners. But when A-Rod got his big contract, he was making, I think, like $25 million a year. That's one player. And the whole team for the Oakland Athletics was like $39 million. Uh, yeah. So, like, yeah, like the, the inequality in baseball is a lot – there's a, it's a lot more pronounced than in uh, basketball and football because there are salary caps uh, in those leagues and, and revenue sharing and things like that. Which, mm. by the way, that's why that's why freaking like these Steelers in like the '70s or whatever um, won so many. Like, there's like so many of these like old teams that like won a bunch. Like that was like before they had the salary cap, which love it or hate it, it speaks volumes about the quality of like. Tom Brady and the New England Patriots who won all these Super Bowls during a time in which that salary caps and all kinds of rulings against them. Yeah, so the, the Oakland Athletics um, in the 80s, they were actually one of the highest payrolls in baseball. They, they won a World Series in 1989. Yeah. Um, but they is the, were... Is that the Bash Brothers? Yeah, that's the Bash Brothers, Mark McGuire, uh, Jose Canseco. Mm. Uh, they were a huge deal in the 80s. Um uh, but the team got sold in like 1995 or something like that. And that's yeah. when um, uh, the new owners basically told the GM at the time who wasn't Billy Bean, it was a guy named Sandy Alderson. He told him to uh, slash the payroll. Um, so it wasn't even really Billy Bean that started this uh, like, um, like bargain bin, like looking for value where no one else can find it. That was Sandy Alderson. So like, Billy Bean was an assistant GM and he was kind of like a mentee of Sandy Alderson. So he picked up like a lot of the stuff from Sandy Alderson. By the way, the oldest uh, GM or manager in uh, baseball right now is Dusty Baker for the uh, uh, Texas. (laughs) How old is he? Houston Houston Astros. (laughs) Oh yeah. Astro. Uh, He's, he was born in 1949. (laughs) Dusty Baker. Um, so the Giants, the year this movie takes place, 2002, uh-huh. um, was in the World Series that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. So at that trade deadline, what the Giants were doing, they were trying to gear up for a playoff run, and they ended up in the World Series. Dusty Baker was managing that team. 72 years old. Dusty <laughs> Baker is also credited as uh, receiving the first high five. In, in Ever? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was, a player on the, he was a player on the Dodgers. A guy named Albert hit a home run, and he was circling third base and running towards home. And they just like oh, 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 slapped hands, and it was the first high five. <laughs> first recorded high five in history. Never thought yeah. about that. All right, fellas, uh, thanks for talking about it, Patrick. Thanks for the information, Joey. Thank you um, for doing this. I know the situation isn't ideal, but thank you for being here. It was a pleasure. Can't wait to see you in person and maybe play Seven Wonders because Patrick was too afraid last time. Yeah. Afraid of losing. Uh, really quickly, Monte <laughs> Bull, who was a seven foot seven uh, <laughs> basketball player, he invented the phrase, my bad, because he couldn't speak English. <laughs> oh. That's how I feel so every time I say my bad. Say, sorry. Yeah, he's like, my bad. <laughs> uh, Joey, is there anything you want to plug? Where can we find you? All that good stuff. Yeah. 
A uh, couple places you can find me, uh, certainly on Instagram, uh, thick underscore flare. That's T-H-I-C-C underscore flare. Um, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, I think, under thick flare. That's T-H-I-C-K flare. Brilliant. Uh, named, of course, after the uh, wrestler Ric Flair. Um, <laughs> but I, I teach and perform and coach at an improv theater in Costa Mesa, California, uh, called the Improv Collective. You can check us out at improvcollective.fun. Uh, we have drop-in classes. We have uh, uh, we have level classes. We have shows pretty much every single week, and we're back from our holiday break, starting. Uh, I don't know when this comes out, but um, uh, starting this weekend, which will be the not just. I don't care. I don't know if you guys care. The 22nd and 23rd is our first weekend back doing shows. Awesome. So pretty much every other weekend after the 22nd, 23rd of January, yeah. we have shows pretty much running the entire time. Yeah. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, um, all kinds of different places. That's uh, that's Improv Collective in Costa Mesa, California. Excellent. Thanks a lot for that. Um, I'm going to wrap it up, guys. Thanks a lot. Um, have fun together. Take some shots for me. I'll see you next time. Yeah. Hey, man. Good night, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was a good talk. Love Joey. Super funny dude. If you're in the OC area this weekend, go check out his show. He's hilarious. This audio quality situation is not working out for me. If you have any ideas about how to get better quality, not through Zoom, remotely, send me your ideas. I would love to hear it. You can put those on our Instagram. That's at FilmSlobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y. You can listen to our podcast on Apple's podcast, Spotify podcast. Please leave us reviews, rate us, do all that fun stuff. Let us know what we should do next. We're still kind of working through it. We appreciate you listening. The music you're listening to now was written and recorded by Randy Flores. The voices you heard today was me, Sierra Gonzalez, and Patrick Kelly, plus our guest, Joey Shope. We don't know what's coming next. Like I say every week. We'll see you next time.